to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, I hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. I ate way too much. And it was wonderful. Um, I took a great nap on my couch, which is one of my favorite tr- traditions. But I love hearing other people's traditions when it comes to Thanksgiving. And I'm sure we could go around if we had the time and talk about all the different uh, theories on cranberry sauce, whether it should be in a cylinder and you should still be able to see the ridges on the cranberry sauce, or whether it should be you know, homemade cranberry sauce. We're not going to fight about it. Jesus unites us. It's fine. Um, some people, football is a big part of, of Thanksgiving. Uh, you either watch football or you go play touch football or flag football. Um, maybe it's getting ready for Christmas. One of the things that we did as kids is we, we would go to my grandma's house for Thanksgiving and we would help get the tree out of the attic. We would decorate the tree and do all that work so she didn't have to. Um, there's all sorts of traditions that come with Thanksgiving. But one of my favorites is where we go around and begin to share all the things that we're thankful for, especially when it gets beyond the really generic stuff. Like you've had a year to think about what you're thankful for. Don't just say friends and family. Think about a specific person or, or uh, an event. Uh, we can talk about things that have been life-changing for us, um, some way that God has brought us through. This is a real opportunity at Thanksgiving to think about all the ways that God is at work in our lives. And I do think it's really special when we can be thankful for something that we've long hoped for. We've really hoped for a long time that God would bring to reality. I'm a sucker this time of year. They always do it on the Thanksgiving football game when you're watching the Detroit Lions lose for the 76th year in a row. Um, They always do this where they'll show military veterans um, saying hello to their family or even maybe coming back home and surprising their family and everybody cries. I cry every time I see that because that is something long hoped for becoming reality. That's something that someone really wanted to happen that became became a reality. And it's unique that the first Sunday of Advent this year falls right after Thanksgiving. Because we have an opportunity in Advent to be thankful for how God has provided for us. Because the word Advent means coming. We are celebrating and remembering the first coming of Jesus as we look toward the second coming of Jesus. And so we kind of sit between these two events, waiting and longing, and remembering the same waiting and the same longing that the Hebrew people had for centuries as they waited for the Messiah to come. The Hebrew people were waiting year after year after year for a Savior who was going to come and make all things right. And what we celebrate during the Advent season, what we celebrate at Christmas is Jesus is that Savior. Jesus came and met all of our longing, all of our desire for someone to make everything right. And so they were a people who waited. And so we enter into Advent as people entering into that longing. We enter into the Hebrew people's longing as we look towards Christmas Day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we do so also as people who are waiting for Jesus to come again. And we can empathize with that longing because there are times in our lives where we're all longing for relief. We're all longing for a longing to be met. We're all waiting to be reunited with someone that we have lost And it's easy for us while we're waiting, while we're longing, while we're desiring, while we're hoping to become weary, to become tired, to wonder if God is ever going to come through. And we need to understand that Advent is exactly for those types of moments. 
The, the weary are exactly who Jesus came for. The weary, the tired, those who need hope. And so there's an invitation during the Advent season for us to come to God, to rest, to find hope in Him with thankfulness. So the series we're looking at through Advent is called Hope for a Weary World. We believe Jesus brings hope for people who are weary and longing and tired. And we're going to look at a different theme of Advent each week. We're starting this morning with hope, and then we're going to move on to joy, peace, and love. And we're going to be looking at different stories from different people's perspective in the Gospel of Luke. And today we're looking at Zechariah. We're looking at Zechariah's prophecy, or as I like to call it, Zechariah's song. And we'll get to why in a minute. And it shows us that we can thank Jesus for making our hope in him come true. We're going to see this in four ways this morning. First of all, we're going to look at hope promised. Secondly, hope remembered. Thirdly, hope realized. And fourthly, hope applied. How do we actually apply the hope that we've received? So first of all, let's look at the promised hope we've received in Jesus. And so I call this Zechariah's song, and and the reason being is, and I know it says the heading, if you look in your Bible, you may see Zechariah's prophecy right before verse 67. Just a reminder, those those headings were not in the original text. That's just a way for us to help categorize and understand and break things up to make it easier to read. Um, But I actually think that if you understood the context here, you would think this is something we're singing about. If you've ever read any of the Lord of the Rings books, um, you'll, you'll notice that Tolkien has all of these songs written out. And I always hum them in the same kind of, you know, sing-songy tune about death and trolls and mountains, and it's all the same song for me. But I imagine this is a song because if you understand the way the Luke's gospel starts, it starts at a place of hopelessness. It starts at a place of longing, and a place with Zechariah and Elizabeth longing for relief. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 5, we see that Zechariah was a priest uh, in the days of Herod, he's, uh, he's ministering in the temple, and he's married to a woman named Elizabeth. If you look at verse 7, it says that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. They are in a place of hopelessness. But yeah, Zechariah is ministering. He's, he's trying to praise the Lord. He's trying to do his job as a priest. And if you look at verses 8 through 17, we see that an angel then appears to Zechariah and he says, you are going to have a son. You are going to have a child. And this isn't just going to be any child, but he will, in verse 15, be filled with the Holy Spirit and will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, if you're Zechariah and you're hearing this, this seems absolutely bonkers. This seems absolutely insane because his wife is old, his wife is barren, they've never been able to have a child. It just seems completely impossible for this event to happen. Good news seems out of reach. Have you you ever been in the place where you feel like good news just seems out out of your reach? It seems like good news is just at your fingertips, but you just can't quite grab it. The hope is just too far gone. Advent is the promise that hope can actually come true. It's the promise that every sad thing will come untrue. And Zechariah and his wife is evidence of that. And we see that because of his unbelief, um, that he becomes unable to speak. Verses 18 through 25 show us how this happens. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. So he's saying, this is impossible. This isn't going to happen. And the angel answers, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And then he tells Zechariah, you're going to be silent from now until the birth. 
For the next nine months, I'm going to shut your mouth. Your tongue is going to be mute. You're, you're going to be unable to speak until this day of good news comes. Zechariah and Elizabeth, their life was a picture of the same weary longing that Israel had. They were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting month after month, year after year, longing for a child, longing for hope. And so Zechariah's exclamation is from someone who's lost hope. He believes there's no possible way that this could happen And it's the same with Israel because Israel for over 400 years have been longing to hear from the Lord. God had been silent. There had been no prophet in the land. There had been no one to tell them the good news. And for 400 years, they were waiting and wondering if God would ever speak to them again. And we see here that God comes through on his promise to both Zechariah and to the people of Israel. They give birth to a son. Fast forward to verse 57, they're naming the child. And Elizabeth says, we are going to name this child John. And they're like, well, why don't you name him after his father? Zechariah sounds like a wonderful name. Let's name him after him. And we see that that Zechariah says, no, he writes down his name is John. And everybody is rejoicing and praising God. And all of a sudden, John's tongue comes loose. I'm sorry, Zechariah's tongue comes loose. And the first thing he does is bless or praise God. And this is why I believe it's a song, because if I hadn't been able to speak for nine months, and I see God come through on this longing I've had for most of my life, and a longing that my people have had for over 400 years, you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to sing. I'm about to sing off tune. By the way, little known fact, the level, volume level in here is to drown me out. I like to sing. I'm going to sing if I hadn't been able to say anything for nine months, because thanksgiving is the proper response to hope coming true. It's the proper response that we would worship and praise God. And we see this, and I believe he's singing because it says in verse 67 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He began to prophesy because he saw in his son the first glimmer of hope of what God promised. And in verse 68, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise him for he has visited and redeemed his people. God has stepped down into our hopelessness. God has stepped down into our brokenness. He has visited us and he's redeeming us. And we see God as one who comes through on his promises so that we can hope in God. Just like I said with the kids a minute ago, not that we're flipping a coin and hoping that it turns up heads, but hoping in the faithfulness of God who comes through. And we've seen this in Genesis as we looked at this in the last several months and we see this theme throughout the Bible that God keeps preserving his people, he keeps rescuing his people, he keeps coming after his people because he will come through on his promises. And we see this ultimately happens in verse 69 in in that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The The horn there for an animal is representative of its power. You've probably heard the phrase to take a bull by the horns to take away its power. The idea of God's powerful nature, that he would send one powerful enough to deal with our brokenness, powerful enough to give us hope, powerful enough to forgive our sins. One coming from the house of David, in the house of his servant David. All the prophets spoke of the promised day when God would send one like David, a descendant from his throne, who would reign forever. And in reigning forever, he would make all things right. 
And so the prophets, as he spoke in verse 70, by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, they all kept speaking of it, that it became this idea that the king, the one who would reign on David's throne, is the same king who would reign forever. And we see that what he would do is that he would save them from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so we see in John the Baptist and we see in Jesus that this hope is coming true. See, all the hopes that you and I have ultimately are a longing for God. That they're a longing for God to make the world right. Israel's longing to be made right in the land was ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And it took Zechariah sitting silently before God for him to understand it. It took him sitting silently and waiting to realize that God was doing something much bigger than giving him a son. And he understood that waiting is not wasted. John Piper says, if we don't seek out silence, we will probably not feel the stupendous significance of God's work in history on our lives. If we don't learn to sit silently, we will miss what God is doing in us. Because silence prepares us for praise. Silence prepares us for thanksgiving. What are you waiting on God for? What is that thing that this never seems like it's going to come? What, what's been lost? What if God is working in you right now through your waiting? What if he's working through your waiting so that he might turn your eyes towards him, that you would see his glory? And part of our discipleship plan for 2023, we're gonna grow at what it means to be silent before God, what it means to seek out solitude with him. Silence prepares us to praise him. So we've seen a hope promised, but secondly, we see a hope remembered. God remembered his faithful promises. Zechariah praises God because he remembers. We live in a day where you can't forget anything. There are multiple notifications for everything you could possibly do. Um, back in the day, like if you were to go to lunch with somebody and they pulled the old, I forgot my wallet trick, um, you go, oh man, I'll get you back later. You, you weren't getting that money back later. That 20 bucks was gone. You might as well have lit a $20 bill on fire on the table because you were never getting it back. Today we have Venmo. You're never getting away with that trick again. God remembered his promise because remembering a promise communicates that you care. It communicates that you are thinking specifically of that person, that you are someone who can be trusted. And God, Zechariah is praising God saying, here, I can trust you. I see that you care for me. I see your goodness and that all the waiting is worth it because you are a God who remembers your promises to us. And he does so by showing mercy. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, why does God show mercy? Not because mercy is deserved, but because mercy is promised. Not because we've earned mercy, not because we've earned that right, but because God promised that he would do so. Why did God choose the people of Israel? Deuteronomy 7 tells us, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. If God was going to choose a great people, he would have chosen Egypt. He would have chosen Babylon. He would have chosen Assyria, yet he chose his little Israel, chooses little Israel. But it's because of the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land 
or from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does God choose to love us? Simply because he chooses to love us. He chooses to love us not because of what we bring to the table. He, he chooses to love us not because of our potential. He chooses to love us not because we are going to do mighty or great things for him. He chooses to love us because he is gracious and merciful and loving and is going to show his power in saving us and bringing us to himself. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith. Anybody can get in on it. There, there's no you know, minimum amount of sin that you, you, know, you, you can't get. You know, if you've done more than this, then you know, you're, you're out. You know, there, there's no height that you reach that you don't need it. Anyone can get in on this, and it's by his grace alone. God is going to deliver us, and he promised to deliver the people of Israel. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that, he, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. God was making a people and was going to give them a land by delivering them from their enemies. Psalm 97.10 says, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. How was God doing that? Well, in the original context, God was removing their enemies from the land because if their enemies were in the land, they would have been tempted to follow them, but also would have been constantly looking over their shoulder. They couldn't have served God without fear because they were constantly in fear that, in fear that they were going to be taken over. But what God wanted them to do was serve him without fear as a holy and righteous people. But what's clear from Zechariah's song, his prophecy, is that Israel getting a land and overcoming physical enemies was not the ultimate enemy. There was a greater, more evil, more insidious enemy that God wanted to deal with, and that was our sin. That was death. And we see that in sending Jesus, there is hope for defeating that enemy. The third idea is hope realized. We see a shift from God's promises in the past to what God is going to now do. And you see this in verse 76 where it says, and you, child, who is, who is Zechariah talking about? He's talking about his son. He's, I imagine, I think he's holding his son. If you've ever watched the, or listened to the, the musical Hamilton, you hear the song Dear Theodosia, where Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr are holding their children and singing to their children and hoping for their children and their future. I, I think of Zechariah holding his son and imagining what God is going to do through him. Zechariah is staring at his son with joy and with pride, knowing that his son is going to be a prophet, not just any prophet, but the prophet of the Most High. Now, the fact that there was a prophet at, at all was a big deal. Again, there have been 400 years of silence. Everyone knew what a prophet was, but they didn't know what they did or what they looked like. And it'd be like if someone said, Franklin Park Zoo has a dodo bird. You go, well, I've read about that in a book. And I know that we say as dead as a dodo bird or as extinct as a dodo bird. I got to go find out about this dodo bird. I'm going to try to say dodo bird as many times as I can in the sermon. You would, you would want to know about this. And so what happens, we see this in verse 80, that when, when John the Baptist went out to, out to the wilderness, everybody flocked out there because they're like, man, God hasn't spoken in 400 years. We've got to figure out what's going on out there. He was a prophet, but he was a prophet of the Most High, seeing that Jesus isn't just anyone. He isn't just another prophet, or a better version, but God himself is coming to rescue us. And that John the Baptist and his coming are the first sign that that hope has arrived. And we see this in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 3, where it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Prepare the way for the Lord. John the Baptist, Zechariah's son, is going before Jesus. He's going before Jesus, and we see in his lifetime that he would preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. What is he saying when he says the kingdom of God is at hand? He's saying hope is here. Hope has arrived. Comfort is here. The end of pain and suffering is here, and ultimately, and what we all need, forgiveness is here. John the Baptist is not the Savior, but he's pointing to the Savior. This is why verse 77 says that he prepares the way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. He's not the actual Savior, but he points to the Savior, points them to what they ultimately need. And and this is how the gospel works. Later on, John said, he said, I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. And he said that I come to baptize you with water, but he comes to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit, meaning that only Jesus can change you. Listen, and this is good. This is great hope for us this morning. There's nothing that I can say in my own power that's going to change any of you. I'm not a good enough speaker. I don't have enough eloquence. We cannot have a cool enough worship service. The band cannot sing in enough parts of harmony. There's nothing that could possibly happen this morning unless the Holy Spirit does it. And that's the good news of the gospel, that it is God working through his word that changes us. And so when we come to God's word, whether it's on a Sunday morning or it's you sitting down over your Bible tomorrow morning, or you saying a prayer tomorrow at lunch, hoping to get through the day, it's not the power of what you're doing or the power of your habit. It's Jesus Christ working in you. That's our hope. And we see our hope is in the forgiveness of sin. The ultimate hope for Israel was not getting land. It was not better earthly circumstances. It was the forgiveness of sin that only Jesus could bring. And that puts verse 74 and 75 in its proper context. Because what does forgiveness do? Forgiveness takes away our fear. If you've truly been forgiven of the one thing that is a barrier between you and God, you have nothing to fear. You you don't have to fear anybody. Because your greatest enemy has been dealt with. Your greatest enemy is not an unfulfilling career. Your your greatest enemy is not loneliness. It's It's none of those things. It's sin and death. And Jesus has overcome those things. Forgiveness also in verse 74, that we can serve God in holiness. That means that your shame has been removed. The gospel doesn't just take care of your guilt. It takes care of the shameful things that have happened to you, the shameful things that you've done, so that you can stand before God declared holy and pure. Forgiveness also takes away our guilt, that we can serve God in righteousness before him all our days. In other words, that you, your guilt has been taken away and you've been declared innocent. You've been declared righteous. At the cross, here's what happens. Jesus takes your sin upon himself. The innocent one is declared guilty so that you may be declared innocent. He is declared guilty so you may be declared innocent. And so anyone who trusts in the forgiveness of sins can have their fear, their shame, and their guilt taken away. And when you get that, you praise God like Zechariah did. 
You sing the song of salvation and you give your life to Jesus saying, I will follow you because my hope is only in you. What if we could live a life without the anxiety that just wrecks us because of our fear? What if we could live without the fear of not feeling like we're good enough? What if we could live without that low-grade guilt that makes you question whether you're perfectly loved? See, in the gospel, there's no yeah, but. There's no, well, you're forgiven. Yeah, but what about that other thing you did? But there are plenty of places throughout the New Testament where it tells us that God's love for us is abundant and covers a multitude of sins. That the mercy of God was lavished upon us and we see that we've been forgiven of our sins, verse 20, uh, 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Think about that, the tender mercy of God. That his mercy is tender and kind and loving and caring. And when you think about your sin, you think about the things that you've done wrong before a God who is holy, a God who loves you. I want you to think about God's tender mercy being applied to those sins. And it's like verse 78 at the second half of it says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. I don't know about any of you, but I struggle with seasonal depression in New England. And when it gets wintertime and it's just gray all the time, I'm like, if I could get a little sunshine, that'd be nice. And every once in a while, that sunshine peeks through the clouds and I'm like, okay, spring is coming. That's what the gospel does. The gospel shows us that in the gloominess of a broken world, that sunshine is broken through. That there is forgiveness of sin and there's a day coming where I won't be affected by sin anymore. I can hope in Christ. The last idea is how we apply this hope. No matter what you believe, no matter if you're this morning, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're not, if you're exploring, maybe you think this is all hocus pocus, like wherever you're at this morning, you want verse 79 to be true. You want verse 79 to be true because you want light for dark times and in dark places. You want there to be guidance for you when you need guidance. You want to know what peace actually looks like. And so because all of us are designed for this, all of us are designed to find hope in something bigger than ourselves, every single one of us are looking for hope. And there's a few ways that we do this. The first way we do this is when we misplace our hope. We can have a misplaced hope. We look to places other than God and other than the gospel to help us. And Israel was doing the exact same thing because you know what they were looking for in a Messiah? What they were looking for in a Savior? They were looking for a political leader who would come along and make everything right. A political leader who would come along and say, well, we're going to overthrow the Roman Empire. We're going we're to be great again. We're going to do this. We're going to do all of this together. They, they were looking to this political savior. And how many people were looking just a few weeks ago to the midterm election saying, we need some political leaders who are going to come and save us. If we can just get the House or get the Senate. Everything's going to be made right. That's a misplaced hope. We look to relationships to fill the loneliness. We look to, to hope and purpose to make our lives feel like they matter. We look to a job in order to make us feel useful. With The problem with all of those things, they're all designed to fail you. None of those were built to bear the weight of the human soul. None of those were built to bear the weight of our ultimate hope that it can only be found in Christ. And what happens is when you misplace your hope in something, you become jaded really easily. When you misplace your hope in relationships or misplace your hope in work, it's easy to cut yourself off emotionally. I'm just not even going to try. I'm, I'm just going to not deal with the future or deal with the pain of loss or be vulnerable with anybody or, or take risks because if I do, I'm just going to get hurt. 
So we can misplace our hope, but we can also have a misshapen hope. We trust God, but more of as a means to an end. Just like the Israelites were looking to Jesus saying, yes, we'll follow you, Jesus, if you give us political power. And many of us say, God, I'll praise you if nothing bad will ever happen to me. I'll praise you if I ultimately get what I want. I'll hope in you if, if your vision for, for my life and your vision for flourishing looks really like my life and you just kind of rubber stamp it. And that's why many of us struggle to praise God when things fall apart. It's because our hope is misshapen. It's not really in God. It's just God as a means to an end. It means that there's only one way to apply hope, and that's hope in Jesus. Only Jesus can truly take away your guilt. Only Jesus can truly cover your shame. Only Jesus can give you a life without fear. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul because Jesus never promised a troubleless life, but he did promise that he would be with us in the middle of it. And what this allows you and I to do is to wait with hope that even if what we want on earth never comes, he's still good. So where are you feeling hopeless? How does, how does Jesus meet that longing? What, what can you thank God for today? As we wrap up, I, I want to give us a, just a few practical handholds on how we wait with hope before God. The first is hope in Jesus' promises, not temporary satisfaction. Hope in Jesus' promises, not temporary satisfaction. Don't just hope in better circumstances, but hope in the fact that Jesus has forgiven you, and that means that everything in your life, your past, your present, and your future, have been taken care of. Second is learn to wait in silence with an eye toward glory. Maybe God is calling you to just simply wait. Maybe he's calling you to simply sit quietly before him, and I believe God will speak to you and, and give you what you need. And then thirdly, see how waiting and hope is preparing you for heaven. As you wait, God is shaping you and preparing you for himself. I love this quote from Octavius Winslow. He says, while Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for his people, the spirit is on earth preparing his people for that place. God is working in you right now to craft a hope in him that's preparing you for the day that you'll be with him forever. Let's pray. 